Probably needs no introduction. Anyone recognise that painting? Last Supper. Okay. Who's the, who's the, who's the uh, painter? Da Vinci. Okay. Now, there's lots been written about this, uh, this painting. Conspiracy theories are based on it, you know, movies and all sorts of stuff. You know, 70 years after that, it's actually a mural. It's on, on a wall. It's actually been painted as a mural. 70 years after it was painted... Uh, there's a, an eyewitness testimony said it was just like, it was fading, you could hardly see it at all. It's been restored significantly in the last few years. So this incredible painting had kind of was being lost from view. I wonder sometimes whether when, when something happens, like somebody that we know has some news that there's you know, a difficult health situation or something in their family, it's difficult. It's a bit like, the, it's easy to lose it's easy for it to fade, that God's promises fade. His presence fades and we think, oh, it's just a blur. Thankfully, the painting's being restored and I think moments like this help to bring us back to that point where, hey, we really need God. It, it's not just a theory. It's real. And in times when we're struggling, we really need to see clearly the grace that God has for us. One of the most valuable paintings in the world captures a moment in history, Jesus with the 12 disciples at the Last Supper. The painting works at many levels. It's like messages within messages in this painting. One art critic wrote this, Although on the surface it looks like a straightforward piece of biblical art, it is in fact an exceptionally complex work whose mathematical symbolism, psychological complexity, Use of perspective and dramatic focus make it the first real example of high Renaissance aesthetics. So there's like many, many things going on as you look at this painting. It's complex, and I think it's a bit like John's Gospel as he records this in the Gospel. It's a very complex reality. There's all sorts of things going on in John's rendition of The Last Supper. There's layers of depth and meaning. And today we're going to explore just a few. So here's John chapter 13. Uh, so let's go to the next one. Oh, I've got the clicker. Can we flick it on? <laughs> Maybe I'm not on yet. That way. That way. There we go. <laughs> uh, so John chapter 13 says this. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So they gathered to celebrate the Passover, commemorating uh, centuries before the rescue from Egypt of God's people under Moses. Now they were in slavery. Pharaoh had enslaved them in Egypt. God sent Moses to rescue them. Plagues came upon the Egyptians. And to escape the final plague... They were to sacrifice a lamb and put the blood of that lamb on the doorposts of their house. And the angel of destruction would pass over them. So they were saved. They were rescued from the disaster. Interesting too, um, we have a description of what's in Jesus' mind. Having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. This is an act of love. Having loved his disciples already, it's like this is the culmination. He's going to do something for them that is greater than the things he's done before. This is the culmination of his time with them. Let's go to the next one. So the evening meal was in progress. 
And the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. And this is where we get an insight into how Jesus operates. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Now there's mention there of Judas. Judas, uh, the devil had already prompted him to betray. So in the mind already of Judas was the idea of betraying Jesus. Jesus knew who would betray him, we find out later on. He still served him. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he'd come from God and was returning to God. There's a sense of absolute security about Jesus. He knows who he is, he knows where he's come from, and he knows where he's going. Absolute security. Because of absolute security, he then is able to take a towel and wash the feet of the disciples. So doing an act of service doesn't threaten his being because his being is secure. He's absolutely okay. Therefore, he can serve. You know, sometimes if we don't feel okay, it's difficult to serve. Because Jesus is secure, he is able to serve. There's something going on there about how Jesus approaches life and ministry. He's not an anxious person. He's completely secure. And out of that security comes the ability to serve. He takes the role of a servant. It's the absolute lowest servant role in that culture. Difficult to emphasize how low that role is. Uh, Dusty roads, sandals, caked on dirt. The lowest of slaves would wash your feet if you didn't do it yourself. If you asked someone their career choice, if they said foot washer, that was the last thing anyone would want to be. Lower nowadays perhaps than toilet cleaner. Dirty, dusty, thankless work. Sometimes it was done to humiliate people. Caesar Caligula, later on, would force the Senate to wash his feet as an act of humiliation. That was seen to be the way he would dominate them by forcing them to wash his feet in the Roman Senate. Submission and humiliation by forcing people to wash his feet. But Jesus does it willingly. The most basic task lowers himself. He is the Lord and the teacher, and he washes their feet. Not what they would have expected, not what anyone would have expected. The guest of honor has become the slave. Unusual, uncomfortable, a bit like you announce the Oscar winner, the person who's going to get all the credit, and everyone's looking for them, and suddenly it turns out that because the toilets were dirty, they'd gone and washed, cleaned the toilets instead of receiving the Oscar. And the disciples were then thinking, this is not right. But they allowed Jesus to do it for them. They respected him. So one by one, he goes around the table, washing their feet. It happens while the meal is in progress. The master washes the feet of the disciples from one to another. And it doesn't record that anyone says anything. Imagine the master washing your feet. Imagine someone you know who's very prominent. Maybe you look up to them and they come to you and they 
take off your shoes. What would it be like a very famous person coming down? You were, you were sort of going to them to honor them maybe. And they come and they reach down. They take your shoes off and they start washing your feet. Hold on to that image. The famous person washing your feet. Uh, let's go to the next slide. There's a famous researcher named Geert Hofstede. I guarantee no one's ever heard of him. <laughs> but uh, what he does, he, he analyzes cultures. And he's come up with six aspects of culture that he's analyzed lots of cultures. And, and these six aspects describe what the feel is of every culture. This is an analysis he did of four countries, Brazil, China, Germany, and the United States. And the second one along is the, he, this aspect of individualism. It's really a measure of how independent people are in a culture, how little they rely on others. So if you look at the United... Which one do you think rates the highest in individualism in all the countries in the world? It's the United States of America. China rates only 20, whereas US rates 91, okay? So you think about America, people are independent, they like to do things themselves, they're not relying on anyone else. China, on the other hand, is more of a collectivist society. So... U.S. rates 91, where do you think Australia would rate in that scale? Closer to China or closer to the U.S.? (laughs) So we're actually the second highest in the world on this scale. We rate 90, just below the U.S. What does that mean? I think it means if you're born in Australia or if you've come to Australia and you like it, (laughs) you're probably someone who values individualism. You're probably someone who is schooled in the western tradition where your opinions matter it's important that you have choice not so much that people are going to railroad you into things but you are able to choose i think aussies are like that people who like it in australia pretty much get used to that pretty quickly this idea of individualism we want to make our own opinions self-reliance we don't want the government telling us what to do right that's kind of australian isn't it We're individually oriented as a society. And our value system says that. It seems right to us that that would be the case. Okay, let's have a look at the next one. Uh, The challenge of going to the doctor. We are individualists. Think about this. Many people put off going to the doctor until it's too late. Studies show around 90% of men and 66% of women report that Although they knew they needed to see the doctor, they chose to wait it out, hoping the symptoms would go away. Uh, Anyone ever done that? We tend to say, let's hope this is not true. Let's just put it off for a while, hoping the symptoms would go away. Now, it happens more to men than women, but it's also significant among women, a reluctance to go to the doctor. And what's worse is that when we do go to the doctor, we don't tell them all the symptoms that we're experiencing. We just hope things will go away. We have a cultural script, and and that is, for men, you have to be tough, brave, self-reliant. It's a sign of weakness if things are going wrong. For women, maybe, don't make trouble, uh, you'll be okay. And so we can be sick and in need of treatment, but something inside us makes us reluctant to get that treatment. My dad is 82 years old. Uh, A couple of years ago, he had a case of pneumonia. Do you think he'd go to the doctor? It got to the point where he almost died. Uh, They had to force him to go to the doctor 
because he was, I'll be okay. Just reluctant to admit there was a problem and get the treatment he needed. And, you know, the sad thing is, I'm very much like him. And many of us in Australia are, I think. We like to be independent. We don't like to admit that we have a need. Let's go back to the story. Uh, Remember, Jesus is going through to disciples one after another, doing the unexpected thing of washing their feet. And then he comes to Peter. Now, if you know anything about Peter, Peter is the guy who speaks, although there is nothing to say. He's the guy who says what he's thinking. Uh, He says what everyone else is uncomfortable to say. He just comes out with stuff. Here's Peter. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Can you imagine Peter's discomfort? It's not right. You're the teacher. You're the master. Uh, You guide us. You show us the way to live. Why are you washing my feet? That's not right. And I think this, this sense of independence, individualism, we might have a similar response to Peter. It's not right. I don't want that. There's nothing wrong with me. My feet aren't even dirty. I don't want to go to the doctor. I'd rather sort it out myself. Peter's shocked, embarrassed, and upset by what's happening. Even if my feet are dirty, I don't want Jesus washing them. So pardon the pun, Peter puts his foot down and says, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus responds quite firmly to him. Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. That's a very strong thing to say. And as often, particularly in John's Gospel, Jesus has said something, he's done and said something profound, a surprising action is followed up by a statement that puts it in context and reveals something about him. Now, clearly the issue here is not dirty feet. It's not hygiene. It's not as if Jesus is saying, "Uh, Peter, you're a dirty guy. I can't stand dirty guys. I need to clean your feet. That's not the issue. It's a metaphor. It's saying something deeper than that. Earlier in John's Gospel, we read these words. Let's go. um, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. That's chapter 3, probably the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16. And John says, this is what Jesus has come to do. Not to condemn the world. People often have the misunderstanding that God is here to condemn. He's not, Jesus is not here for that. There's no shortage of acceptance from God. God is an accepting God. There's no lack of space in his heart. Even for the whole world. God loves the whole world. But there is this condition around it, this idea of belief or trust. And all through the Bible, God has always been asking people to trust him, to put their faith in him, to believe in him. God called Abraham 
uh, gave him a promise. He had no children and told him to look up at the stars and said, that's how many descendants you'll have. And Abraham's response to that was to believe it, to put his trust in God. God says, trust me. God called Moses, go and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And, and, and Moses put his trust in God and went and delivered that. And they were rescued. God called David, go out and face the giant. In every case, it was, trust me, trust me, put your faith in me, believe in me, all through the story. And here, what is the response God is looking for in John chapter 3? Trust, belief. And now he's given us his son and he waits to see, will we put our trust in him? Will we believe? Uh, John 3 goes on. The next part of John chapter 3, verse 19. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But who lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what has been done has been done in the sight of God. So Jesus comes as a light, but there's a reluctance to accept the light, to come into the light. Because we love it where we are. We don't like the light because it exposes our darkness. We forged lives for ourselves. Uh, we feel our lives are okay. We've built something here. We're reluctant for someone to come along and say, well, you need to revise what you've been doing. Even if it's the Son of God to call us out of that into change. We don't want to let go of what we've built for ourselves, what we've made for ourselves. Now, these are confronting words. They put forth the idea that life on this earth, as it is lived, as we live it, isn't how it should be. That we have elements of darkness here and we could walk into the light. We could come to the light. And I think as we look around the world, most of us will look at the world and we'll say, yes, there is darkness in the world. We can see it out there. There are many things that happen that aren't good in this world. There is darkness, there is cruelty, there are all sorts of things going on. We can see it, but the difficult thing is the realisation that that darkness that's out there is also in here. The darkness is also in me. If I was honest, I could go back through my life and I would say there are dark moments. Things I've said, things I've done, attitudes I've held and sometimes still hold that can be pretty dark. It's not easy to admit that. It's not easy to, to come into the light. But that's what God asks of us. Come to the light. Get real. Stop pretending that everything's okay. Face the truth about the world, about humanity, about ourselves, and the invitation from God. Back to Jesus' words to Peter. Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Now, Peter has spent a lot of time with Jesus up until this point. He'd followed him. He'd done what Jesus has asked him to do. He'd served Jesus well in many, in many cases. A few times he'd put his foot in his mouth and spoken out of turn. But basically, he was doing well at following, at serving. But there's something else this independent guy Peter needed to know. You see, it wasn't primarily about what Peter could do for Jesus. It wasn't about becoming, just about becoming a good servant. 
It wasn't about how good a follower he could be. Something had to come before that. More primary than that, Jesus had to do something for Peter. He had to wash him. And unless Peter allowed him to wash him, all his following would be in vain. He would have no part with him. And I think, again, something as human beings we have to come to terms with. We like to be good at stuff. We like, we, even as followers, we like to do that well. And that's a good thing. But the primary issue is not how well we follow or how well we serve. Jesus has to do something for us before we can serve. So the issue of washing becomes the thing he will do for us in, in order that we might serve. Peter didn't think he needed a wash He certainly didn't think that Jesus would be the one to do it. But this is the core reality. Jesus must wash us if we are to be clean. In John chapter 3, the image was about the world being in darkness, needing to come to the light. Peter here has dirty feet. He needs them to be washed, but it's not the feet. It's not the feet that Jesus is talking about. Talking about something else. Peter needs to be washed by Jesus in his life. We have to let Jesus do what only Jesus can do for us. He washes us, and unless we allow him to wash us, we can't join him. We can't be at his table. We can't follow. He brings the light. Unless we come to the light, we can't, we remain in the darkness. Consistently through the Bible. It started with the independence. In the garden. Only one rule, don't eat of that tree. There are 14,000 other trees you can freely take of, but something about the human heart says, I must have that one that I'm forbidden. And so the people disobeyed, and they chose a life independent. They chose their own way. And Jesus has come now to, to bridge that gap, to bring a reconnection. The offer is made to all. Come to the light, let me wash you. Jesus is not going to ask for payment to wash Peter's feet. The offer is free. It's, but, but Peter, resi- it's in himself the resistance. He's independent. He's resistant. And Jesus says, unless I wash you, that's as far as we can go. There's no further we can go. This is true for Peter, but I think it's actually true for all of us. Unless Jesus wash us, we can't have a part with him. Peter then moves on. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Okay, not just my feet, give me a bath. That's Peter. Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. In chapter 15, Jesus will say to his disciples, you are clean because of the word I've spoken to you. You are clean, though not every one of you, he says here, for he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. So what is this washing? This Let's picture. I may have shown this picture before. I, I like this picture. There's something metaphorical going on. He spoke of washing the feet, but it's not clean feet that he's looking for. Unless Peter allows Jesus to wash him, there is no way forward. So what is the washing? The very next day after this event, Jesus would be sentenced to die by crucifixion. By the end of that next day, he would be dead. 
Now this picture kind of puts a metaphor up there. The cross, this is the life of Jesus, given up the next day. The blood of Jesus flows from that cross to all those people coming to the cross. And there's people from all different walks of life there. This is the washing Jesus spoke of. The Bible has this idea of sacrifice running all through it, all through right from the start. Now, sacrifice is not something we get today. We don't sort of talk about sacrifice. But in the ancient world, everybody talked about sacrifice. That was what they thought about all the time. And the Bible was written to the ancient world. We shouldn't read it and, and, mis- and judge it or misunderstand it because we don't get the idea of sacrifice. We have to invest ourselves in trying to understand what was that about. We have to put the effort in, cross the cultural bridge and find out what did it mean when they talked about sacrifice. And basically it was when people needed reconciliation with God, uh, they became conscious of a separation because of sin. And they, what they would do, they would bring an animal to the priest Uh, And they would take that animal and they would confess, put the hand on the head of that animal. They would confess their sin on that animal. They say, I have done this, 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 and this. This is my darkness. And and the, the, the idea was the sin was transferred onto the animal. It was taken from the person to the animal. And the animal was then taken and sacrificed. The sin would go with the animal and the person was set free. There was a way of dealing with this sense of estrangement from God. It was passed to the animal and the animal was sacrificed and the person would be free. Or in the commemoration of the Passover, uh, the lamb would be killed and the blood would be placed on the doorposts and the person would be saved and rescued from the destruction. And in the biblical story, this sacrifice of Jesus comes as the final sacrifice, an end to the need to sacrifice, because a perfect sacrifice has finally been made. The last and perfect Passover lamb has been killed. And the blood from that sacrifice, from the giving up of Jesus' life, flows to all people, makes forgiveness possible, makes freedom possible, even rescue from death. The washing that Jesus spoke about to Peter, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Those words are true for him, and I think they're true for all of us. The washing we need is the death of Jesus on our behalf, his blood being poured out to set us free from sin, to cleanse us from the past, and through resurrection to open up a new future. The finish of the story, uh, the rest of the chapter. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. Jesus has washed the disciples' feet. He's pointed forward to the ultimate washing that will happen. And he uses the example of him as the master washing their feet 
the Lord and the teacher washing the feet of the followers, literally and metaphorically, and says, this is an example that you should do. I've washed your feet, you should wash the feet of others. God knows the world needs help. There is darkness. He knows we have dirty feet. He steps in to offer, to cleanse. By washing our feet, by carrying our sin, by serving us. And he says to us as his followers, I've done it for you. Now go and do it for others. No servant is greater than the master. Don't get high and mighty about this. Just continue to serve and wash people's feet. And you'll be blessed if you do that. Back to the Last Supper. Jesus is in the middle of this picture at peace, perfectly at peace, completely secure in his relationship with God, even with the events of the cross soon to come. His arms are stretched out like this. Firstly, he invites his disciples, come and eat this meal. And then the monks and the nuns who will be watching this painting at the, at the monastery where it's actually, it's a mural on the wall where it's painted. They are, every day as they see it, invited. And then out beyond them, the, the, the hands are extended to all people. It's a universal invitation. It's a timeless invitation Jesus gives to us. It's the first communion meal, a remembrance of the Passover in Egypt where God had provided the lamb whose blood was placed on the doorposts of the house. Each person in the house was rescued from slavery because the blood was placed for them. At this table are the 12 disciples, the followers of Jesus. They're not perfect people, but they have come to see Jesus as their Lord, their Messiah, their King. And I think we are like that today. We have struggles. They had struggles. They were not perfect. We are not perfect. Like those disciples, we come to Jesus as our Lord. We realize we need to be washed. We remember he gave his life for us. He gave us the washing that we need. We have communion, the invitation to eat and drink, to remember him. The bread remembers his body, his giving up of life in obedience to the Father. The, blood, uh, the cup represents his blood. Just like the disciples did, we participate in this meal. Even as imperfect people in our struggles, we come around this table as the disciples did around that table back then. We receive anew his washing. We remember his sacrifice. We commit again to serving others as he told us to do. And we are eternally grateful for what he's done. I want to invite the helpers, and by faith I believe there will be helpers, <laughs> to come and uh, remember the, the table that the Lord sat at 